It is now time for us to take up the living, powerful, truthful, never-changing, inerrant word of Almighty God. Take a Bible into your hands, if you will, and open with me for our ongoing study in Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We come this day to Philippians, the third chapter, Philippians chapter 3. In the course of our study in this epistle, I have emphasized a number of times already how very personal a letter it is, revealing so much of the Apostle Paul's own love for the Lord and for Christ's church. Now, this is particularly true in this third chapter. It is, in fact, the closest thing to what we sometimes would call a personal testimony. The uh, personal pronouns abound. We have, uh, I myself, Paul says in verse 4. In verse uh, 3, he says, I have counted. Uh, I have suffered in verse 8. And then he says that I may gain Christ. In verse 10, he says that I may know him. He tells us that he personally has a commitment. He says, I press on toward the goal there in verse 14 and so on. Many, many more of those very personal pronouns where Paul is testifying of the tremendous change in his life since he met Christ on the road to Damascus. I mention this because I'm concerned that we do more than just consider Paul to be one of the church's superheroes, a mighty apostle. I noticed myself in my preaching and teaching, I barely uh, ever say just Paul. I usually preface it with something like uh, the great uh, apostle Paul, and he is all of that. He is and was an exceptional follower of Christ. He's all of that. But we must understand that Paul and every other hero of the faith through the centuries and even today are meant to be a pattern, an example from the Lord himself to us, to the rest of us, to every Christian. It was Paul who said on one occasion, follow me, and then he was careful to add, As I follow Christ. He's saying, follow my example as I lay out a pattern before you of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, now it's probably true that we may not be called uh, to do things in the kingdom work that we would say are of biblical proportion. But each of us are called to follow in the steps of those whose lives were shaped by the same grace of God which each of us who have believed in Christ have also received. A story I read this week illustrates the point I think that I'm trying to make. It was on the first day of a beginning science course. The sixth grade science teacher decided to dazzle his students with a demonstration of his miraculous powers. To begin the demonstration, he poured a colorless liquid, a chemical called phenophthalene, into a glass beaker. 
colorless liquid. Then he poured another colorless liquid, sodium hydroxide, into the same beaker and presto, what had been a colorless solution that looked very much like water was suddenly transformed into a liquid the color of a lush red wine. And with a bit of a flourish and a triumph, we're told, he began to stir the solution so vigorously that the beaker tipped over and the contents spilled out all over his desk. The students sat there, watched as he worked furiously with a rag and, and then a sponge, trying to clean up the mess. Isn't anyone going to give me a hand, he shouted, whereupon the entire class applauded. (laughs) Now the point being that we are not simply to applaud the commitment of an Apostle Paul, to applaud the courage of a Timothy, or the sacrificial service of an Epaphroditus mentioned in our, our previous study. Not that we just applaud but that you and I would take hold of the same grace of God to bear similar spiritual fruit in our own lives. An example of this in this chapter, uh, when we encounter Paul's words in verse 14, look there, verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14, he says, I press, I, there's that personal pronoun, I, Paul. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Go, Paul, go, as he presses on. But I want you to see this. In fact, the apostles' very next words are verse 15. And what do they say? He says, let us, therefore... As many as are perfect, the word meaning as many as those spiritually mature, have this same attitude. Paul doesn't give his testimony of his extraordinary commitment to Christ so that all Christians everywhere through the centuries will applaud him. But he says, let us, all the people of God, have the same attitude. And so as we continue to look at the personal testimony of Paul, understand he's telling us this is the pattern for believers through all the centuries of time. Let's pause and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul and of all the apostles. We thank you for the faith and obedience of the Old Testament prophets. We rejoice in all that Christ in his earthly ministry accomplished. But we would be careful to understand that these are not mere stories to us, but an example, a pattern for each of us to follow. And so I just pray that the personal pronouns that testify concerning Paul become our testimony as well so that Jesus Christ may be seen working in and through us for his greater glory. We ask in his magnificent name. Amen. Remember now, the apostle is writing what he's writing 
in some pretty dire circumstances. He's in prison. And he writes to this fellowship of believers in particularly dangerous days. This is a dangerous time to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But what do we see right here at the beginning of the chapter? Once again, there are the key words always repeated throughout the whole letter. Joy. He's writing from prison and he says, I want you to rejoice. Or he's writing from prison, he says, I want you to know that I am rejoicing. I want you to have the joy of the Lord. The the words joy and rejoice flow freely from his quill. Chapter 3 here, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, what does he say? Rejoice in the Lord. The first word in that verse gave me a little pause this week as I studied it. The phrase... Is a little like one of my messages. You dear folks sometimes hear me say, finally, and you think that the sermon is coming to an end. I guess I'm at least in good company. Did you notice this? Paul says, finally, and he's not even quite halfway through his letter. Actually, the term would be better rendered as finally meaning When all is said and done, have you ever found yourself saying that in the course of a dialogue that's going on and various views are being presented and and you're stating your convictions in one way or another and then someone finally or maybe yourself has the wisdom to say, you know, when all is said and done, that's what he's really saying here in this one word, finally. It's not that he's done his letter. He's got a lot more to write, and we'll have a lot more to study in the weeks to come. But finally, when all is said and done, what's he saying? When all is said and done, when all that life can dump on you or circumstance can throw at you, I want you to remember this. Bottom line, Christian, rejoice. And as I've said on more than one occasion, I am thoroughly convinced Paul is no mere unfounded optimist. In fact, is a realist. And it's because Christ is real to him. And it's because God's promises have always proven true to this apostle. He says, there is a reason always to rejoice, regardless of circumstance. Because even in unchanging times, or in changing times, Jesus never fails and God keeps his word. Rejoice, he says in another place. In this letter, again, I say, rejoice. It's almost as though he says to this beleaguered flock, rejoice, and they're about to say, about what? And Paul just says, again, I say rejoice. There's always a reason when you're rejoicing is in the Lord. But what makes this particularly poignant at this moment is that there are some very real dangers at the very point at which he says, finally now, when all is said and done, rejoice in the Lord. His next words are like someone shouting, beware, beware, beware. You see it three times in verse two. Rejoice in the Lord. Oh, beware, beware, beware. I want us to look at this. Paul wants, of course, to safeguard the welfare, the, the unity, the protection of God's people. So what does he write here in verse 2? He said, it's no trouble for me 
to keep reminding you of the dangers. And I want you to see how graphic uh, his language is here. Verse 2, beware of the dogs. You ever seen one of those signs as you are passing by and you see the sign and it says, beware of the dog. Just this very week, I wasn't particularly thinking of this text when this occurred. One morning before I left the house, after the trashmen had come by and left all the empty containers, as is often the case, good neighbor that I am, I'll take my neighbor across the street who is a widow. She lives alone and I'll bring in her her trash cans and her cans. And uh, so this past Friday morning, uh, I was bringing them in to the side of the house. And I had noticed before, but never looked too carefully, at the big yellow caution sign uh, that she has posted right at her front door. And uh, so uh, she wasn't home. I thought I'll take a peek. I got a little closer to the sign. And, and it said, uh, it was a caution sign, and it said, Beware of the dog. No, actually it said caution. It was on a beware sign. Guard dog. That's what it said. Guard dog on duty. I knew she didn't have a dog, but she had a sign. And I got a little closer, and underneath of those words, guard dog on duty, were smaller letters which said three days a week. Guard dog on duty three days a week. And then there were smaller letters under that which said, you guess which three days. That was a pretty effective sign, I thought. But now understand, the dogs that Paul has in mind here are not guard dogs. They're not even people's pets. What he is doing in the context of that day is drawing on the image of the wild dogs which scavenged the garbage heaps that filled the alleys of the day. And at times these wild dogs were known to make even vicious attacks on people passing by. So what is Paul doing? He's saying these dogs, that is the dogs personified, were those who were coming in among the believers in Philippi in this dangerous day, and they were men who were frightening and even upsetting the faith of many. Notice what he calls them further. He says, uh, beware of the evil workers and beware of the false circumcisers. Now, Paul's not suggesting three different kinds of dangers here but rather, collectively, one type of danger. And it is this. He knew the dangers for any child of God who would be drawn away, frightened away, or in any sense move away from a pure gospel of grace. The doctrine of salvation by grace And grace alone, all of grace, nothing but the grace of God. So what were these dogs about? There are dogs, Paul says, who would tear apart the gospel of grace and bring people back into bondage to a 
law system, a works way of trying to impress God and be right with God. A religion of good works, of a self-righteous nature. It was interesting for me to do some cross-referencing and notice that Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7 uses the same harsh language. He says, don't give what is sacred to the garbage scavenging dogs. Don't take that which is holy, that which is sacred, the gospel itself. Don't throw it before dogs. Don't cast your pearls, the pearls of the kingdom truths, before swine. Strong language. And I would mention a particular irony in Paul's caution as well here. What he's doing, remember, is dismissing Warning against the Judaizers of the day. Those who would tell people that faith in Christ might be okay, but it's not faith alone. Uh, You can believe in Jesus, they would tell the people, but you must be circumcised. You must come back under the Old Testament covenant and keeping of the law. Only this will justify you and put you in right standing with God. Paul's turning the tables here in an extraordinary way because... Remember this, the Apostle Paul himself, a Jew, in fact, quite an incredible Jew, as we'll see in a moment, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, in times past, in pre-conversion days, he probably often used the derogatory term dog, but always, always, as the Jews did in that day, applied it to the unbelieving Gentiles. Think what it must have been in the ears of these Judaizers to have one of their own refer to them as dogs. He's turned the tables. Now what follows here in verses 3 through 6 is Paul's way of striking, I think, a fatal blow to all of the arguments that these Judaizers were raising. Paul must be thinking at this point, of course, his thoughts being directed by the Holy Spirit as he writes the letter, what case can I set before these troubled Philippian believers who have embraced the grace of God in Christ alone so that these dogs not tear apart their tender faith? And he comes to the conclusion, probably the best argument I can make is from my own personal testimony. Let's see how he uh, goes about this. He's going to speak of his pre-conversion days in these verses 3 through 6. He will basically say that if anyone could have ever been made right with God on the basis of being the best kind of Jew one could be, Paul would say, it would be me, not those Judaizers. In fact, the resume that he will give of his pre-conversion days, he knows, has it all over this particular group. That is, if it were possible, Paul is saying, to be saved, to get into a right standing with God on the basis of one's own works, then Paul would have needed no Damascus Road encounter with Jesus Christ because He was a keeper of the law par excellence. Let the text here speak for itself. By the way, uh, this is a text that speaks not only 
to Orthodox Jews. It would speak well to Orthodox Jews today concerning the Messiah Christ. But I think it's a text that speaks loudly and clearly and with warning to anyone who may even be sitting in this auditorium this morning who has in their mind that somehow they must do something on their own in order to get the favor of God. This just blows it all away. Let the text speak for itself. Paul, where he says, I put no confidence in the flesh. Beginning at verse 3. He says, we are the true circumcision, meaning we the true believers. It has nothing to do with the surgical procedure. He says, it has all to do with worship in the Spirit of God. Those who worship in and by the Spirit of God. Those who glory, not in their own works, not in circumcision or anything else, but those who would glory in Christ Jesus. In fact, he says, verse 3, no one who puts any confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. These are the true circumcision, a way of saying the true believers in this time of grace. And then Paul sets forth the best argument he can think of, his own experience. Pre-conversion days, verse 4. Although I myself might have confidence, even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And of course, those who did have a mind to do that were these Judaizers. What does he say? He's saying, I was a true believer from the time I was eight days old. Verse 5. Circumcised. That's what gets you right with God. Then I was right with God on the eighth day after my birth. Circumcised the eighth day. Of the nation of Israel. Not only that. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Ah. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, This Jewish guy is really Jewish is what he's saying. And he says, and when it comes to self-righteousness, that is the efforts to keep the law, I was of that even smaller sect of the Hebrews, a Pharisee. Verse 6, how about his commitment? He says, well, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which was in the law, found blameless. I've always said the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, would have made a very good neighbor to anyone. Apostle Paul is the kind of guy you'd want as a neighbor. He'd take your trash cans in. Uh, he, He would never give you cause to be upset with him about anything. Paul was a moralist, almost to the point of it being obsessive compulsive. Seeking to keep every jot and tittle of the law. Not that he was sinless. We certainly know that he was not. We have his own testimony that when he stumbled one day upon that particular law that says thou shalt not covet, he suddenly realized that he was someone who was always coveting everyone else's position or possessions, whatever the case may be. But as far as man compared to man... Paul says, nobody had their act more together religiously than me. 
And he had it all together when he was still hell-bent for destruction. On the road to Damascus to do some more persecuting of true believers. And a voice stops him dead in his tracks. The light of the world so bright that his eyes are blinded for a time. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul falls, Saul, to his knees. You know the rest of the story. This is quite a resume. This is a resume that would have impressed any Judaizer of the day. In fact, Paul's religious accomplishments went far beyond, as I've said, anything those dogs were trying to put on the believers at Philippi. Do you have the sense of this now? So next, now we're treated to Paul's personal testimony of the gospel he received from his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And this is masterful. This is a God-glorifying, this is a Christ-exalting witness that Paul is about to give. He has boasted of his pre-conversion days only to make a fool of those Judaizing dogs. But now he says in verse 7, you follow along. But whatever things, all those things he just listed and more, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He threw religion overboard. He threw it away. And as we read on, we'll note that he threw it on a heap of garbage. More than that, he says in verse 8, I count all things to be loss, all those religious things, mind you, to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And here it is. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. This is the key. Verse 9. And, me, and may be found in him, found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from law-keeping, from the law, but that righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, and beloved, the only righteousness that will do, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Simple, childlike trust in Christ. And what comes to us is an The Bible calls it an imputation, the gift of the seamless righteousness of Christ to clothe us in the presence of God. This is the gospel. Again, a personal application of of the apostle's spirit-wrought theology, which he records elsewhere, as he has said, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but rather by his mercies, for by grace... By grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And this apostle's used some pretty strong language. He's called some fellow Jews dogs. 
But Paul, understand, felt a particular burden for those who had been brought into this perverted gospel of the Judaizers. Some of them were members of his own family. Of them he said, I believe in Romans chapter 10, these words, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, for their salvation. Then he gave this testimony concerning such. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. Give them that much. They have a zeal for God, but tragically, he says, not in accordance with knowledge, not based on the truth of revelation. And here's what he says of them. For not knowing about God's righteousness, which is the righteousness of his own son, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Paul says they have a zeal for God, but they're as lost as lost can be. And so is every sinner, no matter how religious, no matter what church one belongs to, whether one's been circumcised or baptized or sings in the choir or teaches a Sunday school class or sits on a church board. None of it. Rubbish! When it comes to that All is said and done, bottom line. To be ignorant of the only righteousness that counts in the sight of God, to be ignorant of the righteousness of Christ granted to us, given to us by faith in him, by trust in him, is to still be in your sins. The question is, have you, may I speak to each of you as individuals, Have you subjected yourself, to use the words of Paul, to the righteousness that comes from God? God forbid that you're still offering up to him to find favor with God what Paul has already called rubbish. This is such vital truth that I I have asked every one of you here this morning. And what have you placed your confidence your hope of heaven. Paul says we place no confidence at all in the flesh. You stand before a holy God. He is every man's judge. And by this time tomorrow, should he ask you, on what basis should I admit you into my eternal kingdom? What would your reply be? The apostle said in verse 3 that he no longer would put any confidence in the flesh. Anything he ever did, From the eighth day of his birth, when his parents had him circumcised, nor through all of his religious accomplishments over the years, he became that meticulous keeper of the law. To him with enlightened heart and mind, now he would say, again, is rubbish. I would wax as bold this morning. We've we've had some harsh words here flowing over this pulpit, but I'm only representing what Paul has actually said. I think the 1611 King James translators had it right when they looked at the original Greek that Paul referred to when it came to that pile of garbage. The King James translators says that Paul called it dung. As if to say, my friends... 
Those faith-destroying dogs he mentioned. And anyone or anything that would ever cause you to look away from grace and grace alone. They offer only dog dirt. I count it but dung, he says. And I'll remind you that God himself, way back in Old Testament times, described all of our own efforts at self-righteousness to impress God, he called stinking, filthy rags. Is the language severe that we've been dealing with this morning? I, I don't know that if in almost 30 years of preaching I've ever mentioned dog dirt from the pulpit until this morning. But scripture means it to be severe, attention-getting, soul-shaking. We do well anytime we are offended enough, shocked into putting away the works of our own flesh. They stink in order to embrace the one who is called the sweet smelling rose of Sharon, the beautiful one, the lily of the valley. Paul, having tossed off the filthy garments of self-righteousness, will clothe himself only with the beauty of Christ. That's all he desires. We leave behind the wretched language of lostness and sinful ignorance that we've read thus far. What we hear next in our text is a symphony of grace singing in the heart of Paul, invading his heart, stimulating his mind, exciting every fiber of his new life. And it is Christ, 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 and nothing but Christ. Listen to the sacred music. I like to think of verses uh, 10 through 14 uh, as a hymn. Uh, The song of a soul set free. Verse 10, oh, that I may know him. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Christ-like in dying to self in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say, I press on toward even more self-righteous works. I press on to practice more faithfully my religion. No, he's already thrown that on the rubbish heap. He said, I press on to lay hold of Jesus, just as Jesus already took hold of me back there on that road to Damascus. Look what he says here in verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. And again, he says, in Christ Jesus. Those are a few verses we've just read 10 through 14, they really deserve their own separate exposition, another sermon at another time perhaps. But I want to share something very personal from my own heart 
that comes out of my own walk with the Lord. Back to the beginning of this very week, one morning at home, when everyone in our household had gone their separate ways, I thought to myself, let me take a moment and begin now, early in the week, to review the upcoming text for what I knew would become the basis for today's sermon. And I didn't have handy my own Bible. So I went into the bedroom and I picked up my wife's Bible. And I opened here to Philippians 3. I have to tell you, it was a particular delight at first to see a number of Diane's underlined verses, many comments that she writes into the columns of her Bible. But what struck me so powerfully that morning frankly, moved me to weep a bit before the Lord. Was what my wife had pinned next to Philippians 3 and verse 10 in her Bible that I'd never seen before. She wrote the words, Jim's life verse, that I may know him, the power of of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to all that Christ was, even unto death. Diane had written Jim's life verse. And then at the end of the verse, she penned further the words, a phrase, and it was this. It's all about Jesus. Yes, indeed, years before and on more than one occasion, I'm sure I did share. This is my life's verse. How spiritual of me. But on this particular morning, this very week, I found myself blushing before the Lord. I wept and I wondered how much of the truth in this verse was actually part of my daily experience, or I could say in the midst of the daily grind. I have no question in my mind that this was Paul's day-to-day experience. I'm ready to applaud. It certainly was a life verse for him. But I think what turned out to be in a healthy way, I found myself asking the Lord to take what I've called a life verse and ask him to make it refreshingly more real in my day-to-day experience in the midst of the daily grind. I want you to note in closing here the gentleness of the apostle toward us in the last of the two verses for today, verses 15 and 16. He says, let us therefore, as many as are mature, don't misunderstand that word perfect there. He doesn't mean sinless perfection, but the word means to be spiritually mature, up to date with the Lord. Let us therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. That is that we too will press on, that we too want to know him 
Let us have this attitude. And then graciously he says, if in anything you have a different attitude, well, yeah. He says, God will reveal that also to you. You know, maybe I should have made my life verse, verse 6 of chapter 1. Because that verse says, being confident of this very thing. He that began a good work in you, Jim, will be faithful to complete it and keep it up all the way to the day or the return of Jesus Christ. Paul says, if you find yourself on any given day having an attitude different than this, God will reveal it. He will do the work. And then Paul says in verse 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. It's as though he's saying, if you can't do anything more today, at least live up to what you've already learned. Let's not be sliding backwards. So let me ask, will you, with me, invite the Lord to reveal more of what we need Him to do in our hearts? To point out any attitude that the Lord needs to point out for us to at least live up to what we already know and then to press on. Let's be careful to not be living below these things. Let us press on ourselves to know the Lord even more. I'll close with this. By the way, I really do mean finally. Seems like we've given dogs a bad break today. So let me, uh, let me give them some credit as well. Author Evelyn Underhill has told a story that really is a marvelous picture, I think, of what it means to know Christ and to live for Christ in an attitude of joyful obedience. Here's what she wrote. She said, a Christian should be like a sheepdog. When the shepherd wants him to do something, he lies down at his feet, looks intently into the shepherd's eyes, and listens without budging until he has understood the mind of his master. Then he jumps to his feet and runs to do it. And then she mentions the third characteristic, which is not less important, at no moment. Does the, sto- does the dog stop wagging its tail? <laughs> Trust, sitting at the master's feet, listening to the master's voice, hearing the command, jumping up, running to do the master's bidding. Don't forget the wagging tail. Trust and obey, for there is no other way To be what? Happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey.